Acute kidney injury is a common complication in the ICU. How comfortable are you at managing them? Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about acute kidney injury in the ICU. With me is Dr. Juan Carlos Isenena. I'm uh, Dr. Juan Carlos Isenena. I'm a nephrologist uh, specialized with um, critical care nephrology over at the University of Kentucky. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's talk about acute kidney injury, because I think this is something that we commonly see in the ICU, whether it's medical or surgical or even the neuro ICU. First of all, I guess, what is what is an acute kidney injury? So the acute kidney injury, pretty much, well, the name is kind of fine there, but it typically is, you know, of course, an injury to the kidneys that tends to be irreversible, tends to be reversible, I'm sorry. Um, it's usually something that improves. That's why we call it an acute kidney injury rather than acute renal failure. Because usually when you're saying that something fails, it, it tends to make patients' families worried and, well, even other providers. But like I said, it's typically reversible. Um, if any damage is left over, it tends to be subclinical as far as we know. Right. So, yeah, I know we used to call it acute renal failure, right? And that terminology has sort of changed over the last couple of years. Yes. Um, so how common are these? I feel like those of us who practice in the ICU feel like we see them all the time, but uh, that's sort of anecdotal. How common is acute kidney injury in the critical care population? So typically, it's really 50% of the population in the ICU. So it is rather, you know, common. You know, there's a 50-50 chance you're going to either have a, an acute kidney injury or uh, you might escape it. And so what what are the most common causes? Why do 50% of these patients end up with acute acute kidney injury? The most common forms, depending whether, you know, even medical or surgical ICU, sepsis. Sepsis tends to be a big contributing factor to acute kidney injuries. And, you know, there's multiple ways that sepsis can cause a kidney injury. It's not simply just, you know, distortion of your hemodynamics, you know, you know, vasodilation, everything else. You can even have what we call thrombotic microangiopathy in the kidney related to complications from sepsis. Outside of that, um, usually cardiothoracic surgeries, um, as you may know, um, can be also a common cause, but there's obvious reasons for that. I mean, if you're taking away oxygenation and blood flow, you know, from your entire system for a certain period of time, you know, there's a risk that you may have an acute kidney injury. And then you have typical, you know, basic things like volume loss, um, whether that's from gastrointestinal disease um, or just volume loss from even from severe burns and those kind of injuries um, that I know I don't see as often, but, you know, it's very plausible. So that's a good point uh, that you mentioned about sepsis, because I think a lot of times we see the AKI happen and, and we sort of look and say, well, their hemodynamics have been stable. They haven't been hypotensive uh, and they, we haven't given them anything that's nephrotoxic. So we don't understand where this AKI is coming from. But you're saying that certain disease processes like sepsis just in and of themselves can cause AKI. Yes, and it, it depends because there are different mechanisms that are on there. And usually when we notice an acute kidney injury, well, we're already late. We're behind in the game at that point. Um, a lot of times the acute kidney injury may have happened well before, you know, we are treating the patient. So as we give them antibiotics, volume, 
it may have already established itself, but once we see, you know, the markers that we have nowadays, like creatinine and your blood urea nitrogen go up, well, then injury already happened. Like we're, we're, it's like looking at the stars. We're looking at the past already. It's, it's already been there and done. Um, and so we just kind of have to work, you know, with what we have. And, and not everything is, like I said, is simply hemodynamics. There are other mechanisms to consider. Sure. So I guess we should uh, sort of define this right before we get too far in. You know, what is an AKI? Because I think we tend to throw that label around, but I'm, are there actual standards for what defines an AKI? We do. Um, we have certain, and that's the standardization has been uh, something of debate until, like, you know, really in the 2000s um we've we've gotten much better um actually the kdigo guidelines um which is more of an international guideline that most of us use nowadays they established the guidelines in 2012 um where we actually have stagings of, of the acute kidney injury those tend to be based on your serum creatinine uh, where it's rising in addition with urine output as well for example we mentioned a stage one acute kidney injury. That serum creatinine may go up by one and a half, a little under two times your baseline creatinine, depending if you know what that is. Or if you see a greater equal increase of about 0.3 milligrams per deciliter increase from baseline. But you gotta, like I said, you look at the urine output. If you notice that they are making less than 0.5 mLs per kilogram per hour for six to 12 hours, there's a possible chance that that may have been established. And now that's just one of the stages. When you go to what we typically see, you know, stage two and stage three, where by the time you're at stage three, you notice the increase is about three times from the baseline. And they tend to be pretty much anuric at that point. You know, it depends on the specifics, but it's something that if you aren't sure, you can go to those KDGO guidelines and see, okay, where's my patient at? Now, from what we see in the ICU, usually, you know, they tend to be, you know, at that stage three point, which is usually acute tubular necrosis. So what's the, what's the, usually the first tip for those of us who are not nephrologists, if we're just taking care of a patient in the ICU, what's the first sign to look for to suspect that we may have an AKI? Well, um, typical things, of course you know, urine output, but it depends on really the kind of the history of the injury. History never changes. It needs to, that is the most important part of your assessment, assuming you can get a proper history. It depends on how ill the patient is and can they even speak to you and where there are witnesses. That gives a lot of evidence on, well, gives you an idea of at least forecasting where are we heading. A um, lot well, because if you have someone with large amounts of, say, ostomy output, they come in and they have, you know, large amounts of ostomy output for days on days. You know, they're not going to make urine. They're probably hypovolemic. You see them, their, you know, blood pressure's down, they're tachycardic. And you you are just giving volume, uh, you know, after volume, just bringing them up. And then it starts to kind of open up. But really, for us and the limitations that we have, you look at, okay, what what's been going on? Are they septic? Are this, how long have they been in this state? Or can we even know that? Um, and then we go with, all right, what's their chemistry? Is that serum creatinine up? Assuming we can 
get a baseline or if it's just pretty much abnormal and are they making any urine and if they are well we have to wait and see how we go and that's this is what makes it difficult is like as you can tell it's kind of amorphous there's a lot that goes into trying to see are we actually truly having a kidney injury or not but i think the best thing to do is you find an abnormal creatinine if you get a baseline look at it compare it and then just look at is this patient making if you find that it's abnormal it tends to be okay there's very likely an acute kidney injury ongoing so you mentioned creatinine a bunch um, what's the role of bun uh, or blood urea nitrogen um, so blood urea nitrogen is also one of the markers we do use blood urea nitrogen is produced you know in the urea cycle through your liver any proteins you know that are being broken down that need to be taken care of then those nitrogenous products from those chains you know become urea and it, urea can kind of flow with the your bloodstream and goes with water um, now of course if that's rising and you see that rising with creatinine as well then that that helps you get a better idea okay do i have an acute kidney injury going on if both are kind of going up together it's very likely now you know blood urea nitrogen can also be influenced by a number of things you know if you're giving someone steroids if they're on a high protein diet but that's usually as we're treating the patient that can influence it and also you think about gastrointestinal bleeds or any form of bleeding really uh, you tend to have reabsorption of those nitrogen products and then your BUN goes up one thing if you look at BUN is very helpful if you have someone who is very skinny emaciated hasn't no muscle mass those patients tend to have a low creatinine and, and what you may notice is that creatinine may not change as you're taking care of a patient but the blood urea nitrogen kind of starts to keep going up up and up if you're noticing that trend there's a good chance that that patient may have an acute kidney injury even though the creatinine is not really changing much and it's not appearing abnormal but for the patient they may be suffering that injury at at that time. Yeah, that's a good point about the creatinine because that is related to muscle mass, right? Correct. So, yeah, so these cachectic uh, cancer patients, for example, uh, that we see in the surgical ICU sometimes could still have a fairly low to normal creatinine but have an AKI just because their lack of muscle mass. Yes, exactly. Usually right. the, the rule of thumb is the more muscle you have, the more creatinine you're, you can produce. Okay. If you have no muscle, well, hey, you're not going to be producing much creatinine at all. So what other lab tests would we want to do to investigate an AKI, either for diagnosis or sort of to figure out the best way to treat it? What I, I find kind of missing sometimes until, until we get on board is just simply getting a urinalysis. That is our EKG. Um, you don't have to just get one. You can, you can get one at a certain point if you want you get another the following day or during the patient's you know hospital stay just to get an idea usually what we look for there are well various casts casts like red cell cast white cell cast is there a glomerular disease they can let you know do they have a uti but also we look at hyaline and granular casts especially because if we start to see granular casts in the urine, that tends to be a lot more sensitive marker for acute tubular necrosis, which once a patient develops acute tubular necrosis, especially if you think the acute kidney injury is rather severe, we know that we're going to be in there for a relatively long haul. 
and there's a good chance that that patient may need some form of renal replacement therapy in the ICU. Outside of that, if I'm trying to work up if a patient is possibly volume down, if I get from a history, or I should say if they have ineffective renal arterial perfusion, that's where certain renal electrolytes are involved. Now, for me, I don't really get urine lights quite often. If they're oliguric, which is if the urine output's under 400 mLs per hour, you know, in a day, then getting urine electrolytes tend to be a lot more effective. That's if you're going to get urine urea, sodium, creatinine, etc. But I tend to look at a urine sodium to see if they are actually perfusing the kidneys because a urine sodium, assuming this is just a perfusion-related issue, tends to be rather low. Um, what that's telling you is that the, mach the machinery in the kidney that in the proximal tubule is actually functioning. And your body is trying everything it can to reabsorb all the sodium and water to come back inside to maintain a volume. Because if you, the urine sodium is simplified for your normal human being, is influenced by, you know, the effective renal arterial perfusion pressure, which is basically your blood pressure. But if you have... Uh, low output states like, you know, heart failure, you can see a low urine sodium. Cirrhosis, if you're worried about a bad renal uh, physiology or, you know, bad renal syndrome, you'll have a low urine sodium as well. Now, there's a caveat to that too. If you, if you develop early acute tubular necrosis, you can still see something like that, but then it changes later. In acute tubular necrosis, if it's set in there, you'll, you see that Urine sodium tends to be, you know, a little bit higher, but in those settings, the the machinery is broken. You're not able to kind of really reabsorb that sodium appropriately as you typically would. Fractional excretional rate of sodium or urea, those we know they're they're more appropriate when you're actually oliguric, with urine output of 400 mLs uh, per day or less. Okay, well that's a good point then because I know. That's, those are tests that we frequently sort of go to to evaluate. Uh, is this a, a pre-renal or an intrinsic uh, type of injury? We'll look at the FENA or the FE urea. Uh, but you're saying that really unless you're oliguric, those are not helpful? Uh, they're, they're not going to be accurate. And okay. that's, those are, that was established, I think it was in the 70s when they were looking at it. And, but it's it's something that people commonly order. Um, sometimes before we're consulted, I'll get certain services telling us, well, we got your urine electrolytes. And I'm just like, did you get a urinalysis? And sometimes I won't be there. But so, I'm, you know, as you know, we go through and round, I know I personally, am, I try to spread the, the word that get a urinalysis, just get a urinalysis. And when it comes to other workups, it depends on, okay, what do I suspect is causing injury if I know? Of course, you know, renal ultrasounds, sometimes those are just spread out and blanketed all over the place. But they do help us pin out, is there any chronic disease, structural issues that may be there, or, you know, simply if there's obstruction. Because, God forbid, you're doing so many things, giving this patient fluid, but maybe they just need a, a Foley catheter or... Uh, some help from our, our urological friends to just kind of open things up. What about imaging? Is like renal ultrasound, I know, is something I hear a lot. You guys tend to order. Is that something that should be included in the part of 
on our part as just a basic AKI workup. Kind of like I mentioned before, if you suspect any kind of obstruction, certainly. When we will order it, we're thinking, well, what could we be missing? Assuming we don't have much information, if you have no information whatsoever on a patient's you know, prior history, it doesn't hurt to get one. Um, because like I said, there could be some certain structural issues that could be there. Um, if you look at the kidney sizes, if you find that the kidneys are may quite atrophic, usually under eight centimeters a piece, that's a problem. The question is, has that always been there or is this long-term damage? And we can look at the renal cortex to get an idea, is there some kind of medical renal disease that's there? Or does someone have just huge kidneys with multiple cysts on there and they have polycystic kidney disease and this is kind of an issue. But um, mainly in an acute setting, you want to just rule out obstruction when it comes to a renal ultrasound. And of course, when it comes to nephrolithiasis, that can help as well. So let's say, let's take a hypothetical situation. We've got a patient in the ICU who's been oliguric. I know depending on if this is a surgical patient or a medical patient, uh, I get different responses from the primary service a lot, but they'll say, you know, that they're not making much urine, give them 250 of fluid uh, or give them, you know, 20 of Lasix. What's, what's the best approach to dealing with a patient who's oliguric, let's say? Well, let's say their creatinine's still relatively normal. So if it's a really relatively normal, first, that's where, you know, if they're oliguric, this is where you can actually get those renal studies, uh, the renal, I mean, the uh, urine electrolytes, and also get a, a urinalysis with that too. Because then you can get an idea of the FE, urea, or a fractional excretion rate of sodium, if that's abnormal. Are we heading into ATN or are they actually volume down or if there is an actual perfusion issue? So, of course you got to look at what a disease states they already have. If this is somebody with a heart, you know, they have heart failure or cirrhosis, you have to look at those disease processes and think about those mechanisms that cause poor renal perfusion. So say, for example, on someone who's, who has congestive heart failure, if you find their, their weight is up, because that's something we look at too, is what change in weight is there? especially if you already know a baseline. If we see their weight is up, there's a good chance that maybe they are overloaded. If you have pulmonary edema, well, this is more, more evidence that, hey, this is where you want to give a diuretic. At least, you know, you try and see where things go. Because at that point, if especially if I see pulmonary edema, I always tell everyone, you don't get better from drowning. You never will. So how do we alleviate that part? And then we see where the kidney function goes. But say you have somebody with cirrhosis, once again, you think if it's kind of a high volume state, but yet they're not getting the perfusion that's there, do you have to think of giving albumin, norepinephrine, you know, anything to improve that effective renal arterial perfusion? But really the base basis of all that is understanding your the pathophysiology of, you know, the various comorbidities a patient may have and maybe what's acutely going on, say if it's sepsis, that once again gets tricky because, you know, in sepsis, we're typically giving, you're giving the antibiotics, but then you give liters of volume. And it depends on how much volume have you given this patient that, well, do they need more volume or do we have to start taking the volume off? And that's where it gets a little trickier. But if they are oliguric, you get those renal studies. If they can help point you in the right direction, that can give you your answer. If you 
have a year analysis that here's a ton of granular casts. Fractional excretion rate, if fractional excretion um, rate of sodium is about 3%, okay, we probably have ATN. So we need to look at their hemodynamics. If they're okay, don't give them fluid. They have a perfusion pressure that's appropriate. You can't do much for acute tuber necrosis except for kind of watch and wait. But if they're overloaded, yeah, attempt to give them diuretics. And sometimes we have to give them a lot more diuretics than, say, you would typically give a normal patient in, uh, say, on the floor. And if you, and you probably may have seen this with us, we tend to give sometimes very high doses for those people we suspect have established ATN, which that's, of course, 80 milligrams or higher of furosemide. We commonly give 160 to 200 milligrams of IV Lasix every eight hours if need be. It just really does depend on each case. That's one thing I've noticed is uh, what is considered a low, appropriate, and high dose of furosemide depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> I will have, uh, I'll have one surgeon say, you know, just give 10 of Lasix. And then I'll talk to about a different patient with a different surgeon and they'll say, you know, let's just do something small, like say 40 or 60. So what's a normal dose of late? Is 10, is that too well, little? It, it, if you have normal kidneys, no, probably not. Here's the thing, you can try it out and see if they have a response. Okay. Of course, by the time when we get called and if we do suspect ATN or something, you know, 10's probably not gonna cut it because what, and a part of it's understanding the mechanism of those, drugs. Diuretics themselves outside of your steroid-based diuretics like a plerinone or spironolactone, the steroid-based ones, they can go through a phospholipid bilayer and get to a nucleus. And so they don't, the doses may not necessarily need to be changed there. Now, when you're going with loop diuretics or thiazides, those diuretics need to actually be secreted into the renal tubular system to actually get to their target. So what we're doing in acute tubular necrosis, we are giving these high doses to get a small amount into the kidney just to have an effect. And that's where those adjustments are because we know there's damage. We just don't know if those specific transporters, are they functioning? And the transporters I'm talking about, there's multiple of them are these organic anion transporters that tend to be in the proximal tubule of the kidney, but they need to get into that tubular system, like I said. So that's where you see us go a little, what <laughs> we make some other providers nervous with the doses we've given, but we have seen in studies before, and there was an interesting one. It's a small study. I think it was done in, in Kansas, done by pharmacists using Lasix strips. So they've, you know, they set a certain goal in mind of how much urine output they want per hour. Say if it's a hundred, you know, mLs of urine output per hour, they've, gotten that diuretic drip up to um, close to 160 milliliters or milligrams per hour, I think, without causing ototoxicity. And that's with a drip, you kind of have this very uh, kind of more stable. It's not this just this huge dose going in. It's something gradual. But when you think about that, that's kind of crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of, lot of it's It's a lot on a drip, <laughs> especially now the issue there, though, is one thing you do, you were, you dump a lot of chloride in those situations. So they were having to give arginine chloride to kind of replace those patients. But it, it, it the nice thing was, even though it's small, it kind of does highlight, we can be a little more aggressive and it just 
when it comes to loops, it depends on your the rate of delivery, you know, especially if you're giving boluses. Um, that's that's kind of where they are. Um, when we played around with it and you look at the data, we're, we're not as afraid to give such high doses. But it's also, like I said, it's understanding the various mechanisms of these diuretics. And when do you add something like metolazone too? That is something where you see people will give two diuretics. Well, why is that? Now, we typically will add something like a thiazide, and especially uh, someone with advanced heart failure, someone who's already been on a loop for a long time, um, because those patients tend to have a little bit of resistance to loop diuretics. The That lupa henley tends to bring on more sodium potassium chloride channels back on there over time. It's almost like it's, you know, it's trying to fix itself and bring itself back into balance, if you will. So yeah, I was actually going to ask about that is when you start looking at different diuretics or combination of diuretics, because I know, like you said, the, the metolazone furosemide combination is one I see a lot. So, so Lasix versus Bumex. I see a lot of times we'll have patients who maybe chronically take Lasix at home or they've been given Lasix in the hospital and the response is underwhelming. And so someone will say, well, what, what, let's try Bumex. Is that a real thing or is that just a, a sort of grasping at straws? Well, it is a real thing when you think of oral loop diuretics. So oral Lasix is not as bioavailable as a Bumex or torsamide in in their oral forms. Now, when it comes to IV, it doesn't really matter. It's all the same. It gets into the bloodstream and it should pop out, you know, the way it needs to. And so when it comes to IV formulations, well, obviously IV Lasix is, you know, much more effective uh, than oral Lasix. So when you're worried about bioavailability and its effectiveness is really you know, when you're giving the oral medications. From an IV standpoint, it's pretty much the same. Now, there are little nuances from a pharmaceutical standpoint that they may care about, but from our end, to get an effect, just to get someone to make some urine, um, it shouldn't matter. So if you've got a patient who you've been giving Lasix to, you give them Lasix, you give them Lasix, and the response is not so great, say, uh, your IV Lasix, say, turning around and saying, well, let's give Bumex instead, really shouldn't you shouldn't see any no difference okay and if you do see something it's probably because all of it's accumulated and something's actually slipped through into the into the you know the loop of family okay get it. okay um now those times though that's where i recommend if you're giving higher doses of loops that's where you may want to add a high dose thiazide such as you know metolazone now the reason metolazone is used a lot that's where kind of many of the studies were done in terms of uh, if you look at especially heart failure patients. So like I said, you're giving loops so often. And as I mentioned, the, the loop of Henley can sometimes develop a tolerance and start bringing on more sodium uh, potassium chloride channels back back in there. And it kind of will negate the effect of the loop. Now, if someone has a congenital issue, what we call any kind of channelopathy. If it's at one site, over time, the kidney itself might be able to make up for that and take care of it. Now, if you if two areas, two different channels are affected, that tends to be bad news. Um, the kidney doesn't bounce back from that. And the same thing, so you can apply the same idea to giving these 
kind of diuretics. Now, of course, Lasix or Bumix, that's affecting just one area, that Lupa Henle. Now, when you give a thiazide, you're going for a different receptor or a different channel at a different portion of the kidney. So the kidney is not going to be able to compensate for both channels being affected. So when you, if you are able to affect both, that's where you see that sequential diuresis, we call it, where you start to see more urine output with that addition of metolism. So some of the studies that were done, they found that you can go higher on your loop diuretic and you may get minimal of a, a, a minimal effect. Now, if you when they've added the metolazone on there or any high-dose thiazide, the urine output really improved. And I think part of it's from, you know, affecting those two different areas. And the, the kidney just can't keep up with that. So when we talk about response to diuretics, uh, I, I feel like I hear this a lot. We say they were given 40 milligrams of IV Lasix and diuresed well from that. What, what is there a standard or is this just sort of a gestalt like they made x amount of urine and we feel like that's a good response uh, what, what should we expect in a response <laughs> that's um that is um that's a good question now some things depending on who you talk with it could be gestalt if you're able to really to know it depends on you you have to you do have to establish a goal you have to sit there and be like all right i have you know a patient who's overloaded they're so many kilos up in weight or they have pulmonary edema i want like say if they're if they're two liters positive or two kilograms up in weight i want to make them net negative one to two liters in 24 hours and that's that's how we need to look at that in terms is what is the difference for the day because we're giving these people a lot of volume sometimes depending on their disease state so for me, effective diuresis is first, <laughs> are you, can you make them pee? All right, great. Now, then you titrate your diuretics to the point where can you get to that goal? Can it keep up with the volume that you are giving in in a 24-hour period? And then long-term-wise, you're going to see, you know, if they're on a vent or, and we think part of the issues with ventilation are volume-related because of pulmonary edema, is that improving? Is their weight going down? Those are the things that you would look at. That's how you would, I would say, you would have to standardize that. Assuming you have a good idea of like a baseline weight, those kind of things. Or if you know that, hey, they came in, we gave them 13 liters of volume. <laughs> Where are we going to go now? You know, if where's that volume going to, a lot of it's still within their system. And as things get better, well, it's not just coming out right away unless we can get some of that off. Um, all right, so let's assume that fluids and pharmacology have sort of failed us and we have to go on to the next step. So talk a little bit about renal replacement therapy and um, when that's appropriate to use. Okay, so, um, well, overall, renal replacement therapy, the obvious one is, you know, anything from a medical standpoint, is it's just, it's not happening, it's failing. Um, or if, say, you are giving appropriate medical therapy, but there are certain electrolyte changes, such as hyperkalemia, that's potentially a danger, that's when you probably want to have the discussion or just introduce the therapy. And there are other scenarios, too, and especially from a volume standpoint, 
especially in heart failure, where you can you're able to diarrhea somebody, but say this patient's just had an LVAD placed and they have all this volume going in, but the urine output can't keep up with it. You may think about, you know, using renal replacement therapy to kind of help assist get that volume off. But really, and generally, it's when your medical therapy has failed and, and or you see electrolyte changes that could potentially put the patient in danger. There's not necessarily a hard and fast trigger for you. Uh, no, so there there isn't. It's really, it, it depends on our assessment of kind of the data we have, their disease process, and where, and we have to forecast these things. We have to see where are they potentially going. There, there is no one marker that says if, you know, if your creatinine is this level, boom, pull the trigger, this, that, or the other, we, we have to follow it. And we, we look at the, the rate of change. If we see that someone is very catabolic, hyperkalemia is really, you know, you see that's just taken off. They're not making urine. Volume is just, they keep packing on pound after pound or kilo after kilo. Yeah, it's probably better to start sooner than later. And a lot of times you can get that just from looking at, okay, what's happened to this patient? What are they going to undergo, especially if they undergo a surgical procedure or they're quite septic and they've been getting leaders on leaders and they still need more nutrition, antibiotics. Those are the times where you can argue to start maybe a little sooner, but it does depend on this clinical decision-making, at least at this point in time. Because there are arguments for early or late start renal replacement therapy, which hopefully in the near future, we'll have some answers. Right now, there's a START AKI study ongoing that's actually going to recruit about close to 2,800 patients worldwide. And they actually standardize the timing, you know, within starting renal replacement therapy within 12 hours or after. And these are the patients that are kind of in that gray area that they're choosing who you could start, but you don't have to, and you can wait. So the hopefully that'll give us when all is said and done, that'll give us some answers on, well, when would be a good time to start? You know, can we have a standard? Because we don't have a standard right now. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on. I think this has been super helpful. I hope uh, people have enjoyed it. Uh, I hope it's been been a good learning experience for people. Great. Yeah, no, I hope um, I was able to answer your, your questions appropriately and, you know, kind of help, help everyone out because uh, it's um, the one thing in the ICU, it's, it's a team effort, right? So the way I look at it as a consultant is I'm, I'm now a part of you guys. And I think if communication is maintained, I think then the therapies can work pretty smooth, you know, and hopefully we get patients, you know, better in home sooner than later. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, we will put the links to the Cadigo guidelines and stuff in the show notes for folks. And I uh, hope this has been helpful. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. If you want, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Brian Bowling, B-R-Y-A-N-B-O-L-I-N-G. Jonathan's at CC Practitioner. And, of course, you can always find us at our home on the web, criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. Tweet us at CC Practitioner. Find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner. 
or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>